In our wanderings through the book of Proverbs, we are coming tonight to the 24th chapter, Proverbs 24 and verses 13 and 14. Proverbs 24, 13 and 14. Solomon writes, My son, eat honey, for it is good. Yes, the honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is thus for your soul. If you find it, then there will be a future, and your hope will not be cut off. The honey from the comb is sweet to your taste, Solomon says. Know that wisdom is thus for your soul. I want you to picture for just a moment, if you can, your favorite food. Whatever it would be, whatever snack or meal would be in your mind the best plate of food that could be set before you in the world. And I'm sure for some of you, as you try to visualize it, and I do want you to really visualize it, as you try to visualize it, it may come to your mind quite clearly. Perhaps for you it's a certain flavor of Grater's ice cream or a particular kind of chocolate, maybe a certain cut of steak, grandma's fried chicken, a bowl full of carrots, whatever it may be, picture it. Get it in your mind's eye. For me, and some of you would know this, it would be a barbacoa burrito from Chipotle wrapped in that beautiful shiny paper and coming out dripping with juices and tasting exquisite. What is it for you? Have you pictured it? Do you have the mental image in your mind? And is your mouth watering yet? If it is, you're going to really like what Solomon says in verse 13. If you have some favorite food, something that you just love to eat, you're going to love Proverbs 24, 13. Because in this verse, Solomon says, My son, eat honey, for it is good. Yes, the honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Solomon is in essence saying, Go ahead, son, eat your favorite food. It's good, isn't it? It's sweet to your taste. So dig into that jar of honey. Dig into whatever your favorite food is. That's what Solomon is saying here in verse 13. And some of you now I know are going to go home and memorize this verse. At least you'll memorize some verse. This is a good verse. And if you're following along kind of in my mental outline, you could list this verse under the heading, Honey for your stomach. Honey for your stomach here in verse 13. Honey apparently was a favorite food in Bible times. If you look at the Bible, you'll see this, that honey was the sugar of their day. They didn't have sugar, apparently. We don't find any mention of sugar in the Bible. But they did have honey. They didn't have Splenda or Equal, but they had honey. Honey was the primary way that they would add sweetener to their diet. And it's mentioned, therefore, a number of times in Old Testament lists of various culinary delights. For instance, David and his militia were fleeing from King Saul in 2 Samuel 17, and they had to leave without any provisions, and they were hiding out from Saul. And we read in 2 Samuel 17 that Barzillai, the Gileadite, brought beds, basins, pottery, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, lentils, parched seeds, honey, 
curds, sheep, and cheese. And honey stands out to me because all those other things are staples. They needed beds and pots to sleep in and cook with. They needed wheat and barley and flour and lentils and all these things to make bread and simply to have staple food. They needed sheep so that they would have meat. But then in the midst of that, he brings them honey as well. It's kind of uh, like if you've heard the stories in World War II, how the American soldiers would go into these devastated towns in Germany where the people had been cut off from any kind of supply or any kind of nicety for years and years and years. And they would bring them staples, blankets, uh, wheat, and so on, but they would also carry in their pockets little bars of chocolate because they knew that though all these staples were good, the chocolate was going to be really good for these people who had been so deprived. Well, that's what honey was like in the Old Testament. It was the thing. It was the sweetener. It was the chocolate that they had. You may know that the favorite description that God gives of the promised land, the land that the children of Israel coming out of slavery in Egypt were going to go into, the favorite description of that land in the Old Testament is a land flowing with milk and honey. Honey was a sign that it was a blessed land, that it was a good land. Indeed, in the Old Testament, you find honey, uh, the word honey and the, the, the product honey, used in the same way that we use the word sugar in a figurative sense. I hope this translates on north of the Mason-Dixon line, but where we grew up, if you said to someone, give me some sugar... You didn't necessarily mean give me some sweetener for my cereal. You meant come over here and give me a kiss. Well, honey's used the same way in the Old Testament. Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 11. Solomon, speaking to his bride, said, Your lips, my bride, drip honey. Honey and milk are under your tongue. So they thought of honey in the same ways that we think of sweets today. And then there's the story of Jonathan who was a warrior in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel 14. He and the people of Israel had been on a long day military marching. They had gone all day without food. And we read this, The men of Israel were hard-pressed. But when the people entered the forest, behold, there was a flow of honey on the ground. Therefore Jonathan put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. So all through the Old Testament, there was just something about honey. And people understood that. Everyone apparently loved it. It was a blessing to get your hands on it. It was their only sweetener. It had, in Jonathan's case, at least some sort of a medicinal effect, somewhat like morning coffee does for some of us, brightening the eyes. It was a sign of God's blessing, all these things. Now, given the variety of food that's available to us, I'm not sure that we have a cultural equivalent to honey. I'm not sure that we have one item that could be uh, such a big symbol for us of blessing and sweetness and goodness. That's why I encourage you to daydream about your own particular favorite food. I thought that was the best way to get you into the reality of what Solomon is saying. Honey was the favorite food. And so Solomon is saying, whatever that favorite food is, eat it. It's good. It's sweet to your taste. Indeed, you might get the best sense of what Psalm is saying by inserting the name of your food in place of honey in this verse. So for me, my son, eat that burrito. For it is good. The burrito wrapped in the silver wrapper is delicious to your taste. That's what he means. That's what he has in mind 
to say to his son. And again, I say some of you will probably go home and memorize Proverbs 24:13. And just as an aside, if you're going to memorize this verse, you should also memorize Proverbs 25:16, which says, Have you found honey? Eat only what you need that you not have it in excess and vomit. So both of those would be helpful. And some of you need to memorize one more than the other, perhaps. But why honey? Why, so much, why am I spending so much time describing to you honey? Not merely as a historical lesson, not merely as a sort of Christian dietary lecture on how we should eat. Solomon is not mainly concerned with honey, and he's not mainly concerned with chocolate and morning coffee, and neither am I. Solomon is trying to make a spiritual point to his young son. He knows his son understands honey. And so he's going to use honey to make a point about something far more important than honey. And I'm trying to make the same point tonight. And the point is this. As much as you enjoy your morning coffee or your M&M's or your burrito or your cream soda or your sweet tea or your honey, God has provided something equally and even more delightful for your soul. Verse 14. Solomon is trying to make your mouth water in verse 13 so that he can say to you in verse 14, now make sure that the mouth of your soul also waters even more so to know God, to find true wisdom, to know the truth. Does your mouth water for God? I have to ask myself that question as I study this passage. Court, does your mouth water as much when someone says, hey, let's study Proverbs, as it does when someone says, hey, let's go to Chipotle, or hey, let's watch the game? And you need to ask yourself similar kinds of questions. You can replace Chipotle with your favorite food or your hobby or your sports team or whatever it may be. God has given us all these things for our enjoyment. And that's important to notice. That's partially the point of verse 13. God has given us honey and all these other things for our enjoyment. Christianity is not necessarily espousing asceticism. It's not just a Western form of Eastern asceticism. That's not it. God has given us honey and coke and all these things to enjoy in their proportions. But in addition, God has given us these things not only for our enjoyment, but He's also given us honey and chocolate and pizza and sports and hobbies and human love. He's given us all these things for our enjoyment, but also as an illustration and as a gauge. God has given us all these things to enjoy, but also to say to us, as good as all those things are to your physical taste, let me remind you that I want to give you something far more importantly, verse 14, that will exhilarate your soul. I want to give you something that will be sweet to your soul, that will satisfy your soul. I want to give you honey, not just for your stomach, but for your soul. And that's the second main heading tonight. First, honey for your stomach. And then second, now, honey for your soul. In verse 14a. Now read with me again, just beginning in verse 13. My son, eat honey, for it is good. Yes, the honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is thus for your soul. Or know that wisdom is the same thing 
when it comes to your soul. Wisdom, Solomon is saying, is honey for your soul. Wisdom brings a sweetness, a joy, a brightening of the eyes to your soul. Honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Wisdom is thus for your soul. Wisdom is the honey of the soul. And then the question is, what does Solomon mean by wisdom? If there's something that's that good, if there's something that can rival whatever it is that makes me in my mouth or in my mind just salivate and get excited, if there's something in the spiritual realm that can rival that and even trump that, and it's called wisdom, what is wisdom? What does Solomon mean by that? Well, as with the sweetness of honey, this idea of wisdom would have been immediately recognizable, immediately understood, and loaded with clear meaning for Solomon's original readers. They knew exactly what Solomon meant when he spoke of wisdom because they had already read the previous 23 chapters of this book. I'm sure many of you have read them as well. And you've seen that Solomon in this book of Proverbs clearly defines what he means by wisdom. He uses wisdom over and over and over again. He compares wisdom to various things. He illustrates wisdom. But in a few places, he defines what he means by wisdom. And what does he say in those few places? What is wisdom? What is this honey for the soul? Well, if you look at chapter 1, verse 7, you'll begin to see the answer. In chapter 1, verse 7, Solomon says to us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or your translation may say wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then over in chapter 9, verse 10, he says the same thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And Solomon apparently had been hearing these things growing up from his father David because David in Psalm 111 verse 10 says the very same thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Solomon's father must have been urging him to gain wisdom the same way now Solomon is urging his own son to gain wisdom in the way he is by extension urging us to gain it. And it's clear from what we've just heard, namely that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it's clear that when Solomon urges us over and over again in this book to gain wisdom, when he tells us that wisdom is honey for our souls, he does not have in mind that we all become sages, you know, walking around creating proverbs of our own. He doesn't have in mind that we all have to be Aesop or that we all have to get a Ph.D. or that we all have to read more and more books or certainly that we all have to tune in to Dr. Phil. None of those are the kind of wisdom he's talking about here. The wisdom that Solomon is referring to has much more to do with the bent of the heart and with the state of the soul and with the direction of our morality. That's the kind of wisdom he's talking about. It also has to do with our minds and what we put in there. But it's not simply wisdom that can be gained in our mind. It's wisdom that has to do with the mind and the heart and the soul and the moral will. And all four of those things, heart, soul, mind, and morality, if we have true wisdom, are bent towards God. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So at base level, what Solomon is saying here in this verse is that Wisdom has to do with the fear of the Lord, and therefore the fear of the Lord is honey for our souls. 
Wisdom is honey for our souls, and wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Therefore, the fear of the Lord is honey to our souls. And then the question we have to ask, roaming outside of verse 14, is what does Solomon mean by the fear of the Lord? Wisdom's honey for our souls. Wisdom is the fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? Well, let's back up again and look around in the book of Proverbs and see if he defines that term for us, the fear of the Lord. And you'll find that he does in a number of places. I want to just show you two that I think are representative. What does Solomon mean by the fear of the Lord? We saw one of the passages already. It was chapter 9 and verse 10. I'd like you to turn there if you haven't already. Chapter 9, verse 10. Solomon is going to define the fear of the Lord. He says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now, have you ever noticed in Proverbs, and it often happens in the Psalms, but especially in Proverbs, how the ver- every verse almost seems to have two lines to it. And the first line and the second line always say the same thing, just in different ways. Have you noticed that? It's not always the case. Sometimes the second line and the first line contrast each other, but sometimes they say the same thing in two different ways. And that's what's going on in chapter 9, verse 10. In the first half of the verse, he says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And in the second half of the verse, he says the same thing in different words. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Wisdom and understanding are the same there. The fear of the Lord is wisdom. The fear of the Lord is understanding. And that means that the fear of the Lord is the same, is parallel with the knowledge of the Holy One. So what he's saying two times is if you want to have wisdom, if you want to have understanding, then you have to have the knowledge of the Holy One. That's a definition of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord means, in Solomon's mind, first of all, the knowledge of the Holy One, that we would know God, that we would know God. Do you really know God? I feel certain that most of you know religion. I know that almost all of you know some Bible. It's obvious tonight you know how to act in church. You know the facts about Jesus. But that's not what Solomon is saying. He's saying the fear of the Lord, which is wisdom, is knowledge of God, truly knowing God. And that's an important question. We ask that to our children, and I ask it to you children tonight, and I ask it to you adults. Do you really know God? Is He your friend? Do you find yourself regularly talking to Him? Do you find yourself listening to Him and listening carefully? Fear of the Lord is to know God. Wisdom is to know God. And this idea of listening to God and listening carefully brings me to the second place where Solomon defines the fear of the Lord. Chapter 8, verse 13. There he says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So, on one hand, the fear of the Lord is to know God. And on the other hand, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, to hate sin. Even and especially your own sin. To hate it. Not just to know that it's wrong and to agree, yes, this is sin. That's important, but that's not what he's saying. And he's not just asking that we hate it when we get caught. And he's not just saying that we feel bad if we hurt someone by our sin. He's actually saying that the fear of the Lord, which is wisdom, is to hate your sin because it's evil in God's sight. 
Now, before we breeze past that too comfortably and say, oh, yes, I, I hate my sin or, or, you know, I don't have a lot of sin left in me that's very uh, much to hate. Remember Proverbs 21 two: every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. So before we say, well, you know, hating evil, OK, that sounds good. Let's remember how much that there's still left in our hearts. God weighs the hearts. He knows the secret pride that some of us have, the hidden bitterness that's there, the lustful thoughts that we think, the dishonesty that we think no one else knows about. And even if we think, well, I mean, I don't know if it's really that bad. We've asked this question before, and I just pose it to you again tonight. What if all the, all the things that you've thought in the last week but not said were flashed up on the screen tonight? Wouldn't you be so ashamed? I would. I'd be so embarrassed. And the question is, what is it for you? Have you recognized that there really is sin constantly raging inside of your heart? Unbelief, bitterness, anger, selfishness, all of those things. And do you really hate it? Not because somebody's ever going to put it on the screen, but because God sees it and God knows about it. Do you really hate sin? Do you really fear the Lord? Now let's do a little geometry then. Okay, are you ready for this? Remember the simple rule in high school? If A equals B and B equals C, then what? A equals C. Okay, A equals B and B equals C, then A also equals C, right? Okay, let's apply it to what we've said. If wisdom equals the fear of the Lord, chapter 1, verse 7, chapter 9, verse 10, if wisdom equals the fear of the Lord, And if the fear of the Lord equals knowing God and hating sin, then wisdom equals knowing God and hating sin. Wisdom is to know God and to hate evil, to hate sin, especially your own sin. Or to get back to our opening metaphor, knowing God and hating evil are the honey of the soul. Wisdom is honey to the soul. And wisdom is to know God and to hate evil. And so what Solomon is trying to say, if you put the whole message of Proverbs and the whole message of wisdom together and then stick it into this verse and this metaphor of honey, what Solomon is saying is life's sweetness, life's joy, life's real happiness is found in knowing God and in hating your sin. It's not found primarily in food or in sports, or in success, or in sexual pleasure, or in the perfect marriage, or in health, or financial security. All these things are given to us by God for our enjoyment, but they aren't the ultimate honey for the soul. Life's sweetness, the honey for the soul, is found in truly knowing God and in truly hating your sin. That's why Solomon's father told us in Psalm 119.103, told God actually, God, how sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. From your precepts I get understanding. I come to know God. Therefore, I hate every false way. You see, David makes the same connection. I want to have honey for my soul. And that means that I know God, I understand God, and that I hate every false way. And he says, when I turn to your word, I understand you, I come to know you, and I hate every false way. Therefore, your word is like honey to my mouth. 
some of us have tasted this and we know that it's true. We know that life's highest joys come when we find ourselves seeking God, knowing God, serving God, and fleeing from and hating our sins. Some of us have tasted that and we know exactly what Solomon is talking about. And yet we find ourselves, don't we, so often digging into the world's beehives, looking for satisfaction when it was there in God and in His Word all along. I'm sure that most of us, even in the last week, have found ourselves far too easily distracted and far too easily satisfied with all sorts of other things that are good, but that aren't the best. And we need to plead with God simply to help us eat better. That we would go after the real honey. Some of us perhaps have never known the sweetness of knowing God and hating our sin. I mean, maybe we know the gospel. Maybe we've said all the right things. Maybe we could explain to someone else how to become a Christian. But we, we would stand back from this and say, I don't know any sweetness in it. I'm not sure if I know what it really means to know God. And I'm really not sure I know what it means to hate my sin. And if I did really know God and began to hate my sin, I'm not sure if I would find that very enjoyable, if I'd find that sweet to my taste. And so it may be hard to comprehend what Solomon is saying. You may say to yourself, how can studying the Bible and praying and worshiping God and, and self-recrimination on top of that, how can hating something that's inside of me actually make me happy? How can those things, how can church and prayer and the Bible actually be more exhilarating than the game or than the vacation or then sexual fulfillment, or then moving up the ladder at my job. How can this be? To which the Bible answers, taste and see that the Lord is good. In other words, I can't, I can't reason with you to explain to you that serving God is better than all the pleasures that God affords that aren't God. I can't reason you into believing that. But you try and see is what... The psalm says, see if the fear of the Lord really is sweet to your soul. But here's the deal. Here's the snag. Simply reading your Bible and saying your prayers and going to church and doing all these things won't necessarily make you fear the Lord, will they? Simply reading your Bible and saying your prayers and going to church won't guarantee that you'll know the Lord. They won't guarantee that you'll hate your sin. If that were true, I wouldn't be preaching this sermon. I wouldn't be urging you to know the Lord and hate your sin if all it took was going to church and reading the Bible and praying because you're at church and we're reading the Bible, right? And we've prayed already together. And yet I still find myself in need of urging and I find the need to urge you to fear the Lord, to know God, to hate your sin. And the reason for that is because knowing God and hating your sin aren't mechanical. If you want this sweeter than honey wisdom that Solomon is speaking about, it's not something that you can just tick off a few boxes and it's there. You actually have to meet God Himself. God Himself has to come and work in your heart so that you will hate your sin. Because the problem for all of us is that we love our sin, right? If we didn't love our sin, we wouldn't do it. And so it's not just a matter of saying, okay, now I'm going to hate my sin. It's not mechanical. Bible study helps. Prayer helps. Church helps. All those things are actually indispensable because they give you an opportunity to meet God. But meeting God there is not automatic. Knowing God is not automatic. 
It's a spiritual thing. It's a personal thing. It's a relational thing that happens between you and Him. And you need it to happen. And it's not as simple as a geometric formula, is it? God is completely outside of us. God is up there and we are down here. The theological word for that is He is transcendent. He is completely other than us. And so if we're actually to meet God, if we're actually to gain this wisdom that Solomon is talking about, it's not going to simply come as a matter of study. The study will have to lead us to an encounter with a person, God Himself. God is going to have to show Himself to us. He's going to have to show up in our lives. I say again, if we are to have the wisdom that Solomon is speaking about, if we are to taste the sweetness that he is speaking about, we need God Himself to come and show up in our lives. We need Him to show Himself to us. And He has. He has in the person of His Son. The New Testament writers are actually quite keen to make this point. For instance, John 1.18, John the Apostle writes, No one has seen God at any time. Wouldn't it be bad if that was the end of the sentence? No one has seen God at any time. But it's not the end of the sentence. There's a punctuation. And then, the only begotten God... Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. We can't see God, and so we might think, well, if I'm going to know God and I can't see Him, then I'm doomed. But the only begotten God, Jesus, has explained Him, has come and shown us God and been God in the flesh. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 has the same kind of idea. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. Wisdom is to know God. Knowing God is not mechanical. God has to show up in our lives. We can't make it happen, but God has made it happen in coming to the earth in the person of Jesus. You're not going to see the Father at any time. And you're not going to gain wisdom by memorizing facts about Him or by trying with all of your might to follow His rules. You haven't followed His rules. You won't follow His rules. You don't today follow His rules and you can't follow His rules. That's not it. How do you know God? How do you gain wisdom? Obviously, He has to do it and He's done it by coming to you in the person of His Son. And I want you just to consider how knowable Jesus really is. I'm sure you've thought of all these things before, but have you considered that Jesus has made himself so plain to us and therefore God has made himself so plain to us? We have 66 books of the Bible that are all about Jesus. Someone says, all of them are about Jesus? Well, that's what he says in Luke 24 as he's explaining to a couple of guys about himself, and it says he starts way back in the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and goes all the way through the Old Testament and shows them how all the law and all the prophets speak about him. All these books are about him. He's made himself known to us. And on top of that, he became flesh. God became a human in the person of Jesus, didn't he? And therefore, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. He can understand our pain. He can know our grief. He knows what it's like to be tempted. Indeed, the only experience that you and I have that Jesus can't identify with is giving in to that temptation. 
And most stunning of all, he's laid down his life as a payment, as a sacrifice for all of those sins that you and I don't hate nearly as much as we should. He's died the death that we deserve so that the barrier between God and us is gone. Jesus died so that we can know God. He gave us His Word so that we can know God. He came in the flesh so that we can know God. And He died so that we can know God. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. So if you want this sweeter than honey wisdom, it means you must fear the Lord. And fearing the Lord means you must know the Lord. And knowing the Lord happens because God has spoken to us in His Son. And therefore, we aren't surprised when we find the Apostle Paul writing this, By His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Isn't that good news that Jesus has become to us wisdom from God? Without Him, what would we do? We're supposed to seek God. And none of us seeks Him as we should. We're supposed to hate our sins. And none of us hates our sin as we should. None of us can know God without Jesus. We couldn't know what God was like in any kind of personal way without His incarnation. And we couldn't know any kind of relationship, any friendship with God without His death on our behalf because our sins were a barrier. We can't know God without Jesus, and yet He's bridged all those gaps. We don't seek God as we should. We don't know God as we should, but Jesus has sought us, and He's known us, and He's brought us to God. We don't hate our sins or flee from them as we should, but He paid the penalty for our sins, and when we come to Him, He also changes us inside out so that we begin hating and fleeing far more than we ever thought possible. We don't know God on our own, and yet Jesus laid down His life, 1 Peter 3, to bring us to God. He's become our wisdom. Wisdom is supposed to make us know God and fear God and turn from our sins. And we haven't done it. Jesus has done it all for us. He has become our wisdom. He has become our relationship with God. He has become our moral wholeness. He is the honey. He is the satisfaction that our souls desperately need. Now if we had the time, we'd add a third point to the sermon. Number one, honey for your stomach. Number two, honey for your soul. And then number three, from the last half of verse 14, honey, or excuse me, hope for your future. I hope that you can see there that verse 14b is about hope for the future. If you find it, wisdom, then there will be a future and your hope will not be cut off. I don't have time tonight to delve into that, but suffice it to say that if Jesus is the it in verse 14b, if he's the wisdom that we need, the verse makes perfect sense. If you find Jesus, then there will be a future and your hope will not be cut off. Have you found Jesus? Children? Adults? Has He found you? If so, and that would cover many of you, 
If he has found you, would you plead with the Lord to help you? Stop being satisfied with alternative sweeteners. Stop being satisfied with so many packs of sweet and low, as it were. Would you plead with God to help your stomach growl for Jesus, for honey, for your soul? Would you plead with the Lord to help you? For instance, read your Bible, not just so that you check it off the list, but read your Bible looking for honey, looking for Jesus. Even in these bizarre books in the Old Testament. Would you plead with the Lord to help you come to church? Not because you're supposed to, but that you would come here looking for honey. Hungry to hear more of Jesus and to know more of Jesus and to give more to Jesus and to worship Jesus. Would you plead with God to give you, in all these different ways, more of Jesus? Not just more of religion, Not even just more of understanding the Bible, but more of going to the Bible so that you can find and worship and know and be loved by Jesus. He is the one kind of honey that we cannot have, as Solomon says, in excess. And if you haven't found or been found by Jesus, would you simply plead with him to find you, to show himself to you, And as he does, would you embrace him as your friend, as your savior from your sins, as your God, as your wisdom? Would you embrace Jesus as the honey that your soul has always been longing for?